to the last, literally the last few hours of Jesus' life on earth pre-resurrection, and we are, um, today we, we come to the cross. And the cross is in, in John 19. Um, there's a, a lot of, literally the, the cross is the essence of who we are as Christians. I mean, it's the, the central piece of who we are and what we believe. Um, and it's, a, it's an amazing thing that we're going to study today. And you, a pastor could preach 20 sermons in a row on the cross and it still not be enough. So I wrestled this week uh, coming to the crucifixion of Christ according to John's Gospel, how to tackle this. And I decided to just simply... Um, address what John addresses here in his Gospel of the Cross. I mean, we to try and not spend so much time that we cover every little aspect of the cross, but John wrote this letter for a reason, and he wrote and covered the things that he did for a reason. Uh, you notice a lot of things in John's Gospel are um, different. Not different as in um, counter to but different in that highlighting uh, new and different things that the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, do not highlight. Um, the crucifixion is, is similar in that it highlights things that um, the other Gospels do not, and it does highlight things that, that they cover as well. So the account that we read in John 19 of the crucifixion gives us a little different insight than maybe you would get other, in the other Gospels. So I decided to allow John's Gospel to speak for itself and touch on that which John decided that he wanted to highlight. I wanted to look at the cross through the lens of those people that were there and talk about the cross from the perspective of those people that John highlights. Uh, And each one of us has to confront the cross. Uh, I, I'm a, a changed human being, and I have received so much joy and hope in my life because as a young man, I saw myself standing at the foot of the cross. I understood the Jesus of the crucifixion. I, I came to... Uh, bow down before the bleeding, suffering Savior of the cross. And it's through this that my life was never the same again. It's, it's because of those moments as a young man and the subsequent teachings of the Word of God that I have decided to give Jesus my everything. Whether I was a pastor or I wasn't a pastor, Jesus would deserve nothing less than my everything. And Christ, because of what we look at on the cross today, Christ deserves nothing less of your everything. Um, We are busy people. We live very uh, chaotic and hectic lives. We are consumed by many secular things. The culture around us crowds into our life. People want to... Um, take precedence and priority in our life, and yet there's the cross that demands priority. Um, And just to relate, before we read the text, how significant this is, I want to highlight two things that 
um, occurred this week. One that you'll be familiar with because it was a very public thing. A gentleman, and I don't remember the name off the top of my head, but you may have seen this news story, was called to sit before a selection committee of the United States Senate in order to have his deputy budget director position approved uh, as an appointment by the United States Senate. And uh, Senator Bernie Sanders from Vermont came, and it was his opportunity to question this man. And it became a, an opportunity to um, accost him. Here you have a, a deputy budget director of the United States uh, charged with numbers. I mean, that's his life, numbers, right? An avowed born-again Christian decided that he was going to, years ago, write a public article defending his alma mater, Wheaton College, and what they believed in their statement of faith. Their statement of faith is very exclusive. You know, they believe in the uh, they believe in the death, resurrection, and um, of Jesus Christ. They believe in the sacrificial atonement. They believe in Jesus Christ as the only way to heaven. And and this man was an alma mater of Wheaton, and he decided that he wanted to write a piece because his school was, for whatever reason, being questioned. He decided to write a piece in defense of what his alma mater believed, Wheaton College, an avowed Christian school. Somehow, Bernie Sanders got a hold of this piece and decided that he was going to accost this man for his Christian beliefs before the United States Senate. And maybe you've seen the line of questioning. But he, he, um, he accosted this man primarily because this man's testimony as a believer was that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. It's the cross of Christ that made a way for man to be redeemed and to be united with God in relationship and to inherit eternal life in heaven. That there are no other ways to heaven except the cross of Christ, right? Now hopefully in this room we would all agree with that. There is no other way for which man can be saved but by the sacrifice and the name of Christ. That wasn't good enough for Senator Sanders. And he said to the man, he said, are you telling me that a Muslim stands condemned? And the man said, I'm telling you as a Christian what I believe. So you're saying they're condemned. And he kept hammering him, saying, Muslims are condemned, Christians are saved. Muslims are condemned. Is that what you're saying? And the man kept saying, look, these are fundamental Christian beliefs. This is what I believe. And then finally, Senator Sanders pushed himself back from the dice and he said, he said to his other senatorial colleagues, I can't approve a man like this because this isn't what the United States is about. What? Freedom to believe and worship what you want is no longer what the United States is about? The right for a Christian to believe that the cross of Christ is the most important thing that a, a person needs to understand and, 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 and receive in their own life? Now, on a more personal level, this week, um, my wife got word that her college ministry director from 20 years ago, when my wife was in, uh, at Auburn University as a young woman, she went to a, um, a local church that had a campus ministry, and uh, they, the director of that campus ministry 
had a little boy. His name was Ben. Obviously, 20 years later, Ben grows up. Um, and uh, they found out that he had been hiking and had suffered uh, from reached the summit of a hill or wherever he was hiking, had suffered from heat stroke as a 26-year-old and had died. Um, and so the church had to come to grips with the fact that this young man and their pastor and his son had, had died unexpectedly. What do you think they rallied around as parents losing their 26-year-old son? What do you think the church rallied around for hope when something like that came crashing over them. Mindy watched uh, part of the memorial service. And do you know what the pastor did? He just kept reading verse after verse after verse about the sacrifice of Christ, Christ, the goodness of Christ, the deliverance of Christ, the cross of Christ. Everything about who we are as Christians comes down to the cross of Christ, does it not? If there's no cross of Christ, there's no salvation. And if there's no salvation, there's no hope. So why do what we do? And as Paul would say, I mean, we are the we should be pitied the most if the cross of Christ is not true, if the resurrection is not true. Because that makes everyone in this room crazy town. I mean, we are to be pitied the most because we are the most confused and lost. So this family rallies around the fact that. Just a few days before, this pastor had the opportunity. His son called him up and said, can I have lunch with you, Dad? They had lunch together, the 26-year-old son, which is every father's heartfelt desire, sat there across from his father, pastor father, and said to him, I know I've been a goof in my life. I know I've done some wrong things, but Dad, I just want you to know I believe in the cross of Christ. I, 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 I firmly want to follow Jesus with everything I've got. That was the gift that God gave this pastor a few days before his son died. His son came to him and said, I just want you to know how much I love Christ. So now they can celebrate, knowing that they'll be reunited again. I feel bad for Senator Sanders because he doesn't have that hope. He sees life as a political solution. We see the solution to life as the sacrificial cross of Christ. So let's go here to John 19, beginning in verse 16. Here we're going to see the cross brought completely into a new focus, according to John's Gospel. The cross used to be one of punishment and vengeance, and now we're going to see the cross as a vehicle of love and ministry. Our hope as Christians, our focus is now on hope and life, no longer on suffering and death. It's the cross where we see the extreme depth of God's love. It's the cross where we see also see, think about this, the cross is where you see the extreme depth of God's love. The cross is also where you see the extreme depth of man's depravity, isn't it? Never was there a greater example of man's wicked heart than the cross. And never was there a greater example of love through Jesus Christ than the cross. And here they would collide. God's love, man's depravity, they collide at the cross. Here we hit the pinnacle of the awesome hilarity of this execution that the Romans and the Jews saw as justice. God had a different idea of what that justice was. The Jews 
and the Romans thought they were judging one who was wicked and sinful. God was judging His own Son based upon us and our wickedness and our sinfulness. Christ is raised up on the cross and He's surrounded by sinful men on every side. And the hilarity of it is, He was raised up, all these sinful men on every side of Him, and yet it was Him who was dying for them all. And He knew it at that moment. John 19, beginning in verse 16. So he, Pilate, delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and they divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother, And the disciple whom he loved, standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. And we're going to stop there for today. We learn some things about the cross based upon the people that are here in this scene as it plays out. Let me give you some things that we learn about the cross. First, in the thief, we learn about the power of belief toward the cross. In the thief, we learn about the power of belief toward the cross. Insurrections and bloodied criminals and robbers carrying crosses to Golgotha was meant to intimidate. The scene of uh, uh, wicked people, revolutionaries, insurrectionists, anybody who committed a crime against the state that was condemned to death, bloodied, beaten, and carrying their cross to Golgotha was the Roman way. They wanted people to see this. It was supposed to be ugly. It was supposed to be um, intimidating. The Persians were the first ones, as far as we know, that were thought to that that had thought to initiate crucifixion. The Persians used to do was simply to take a pike uh, outside or on top of the city walls, and somebody who committed a crime, they would put the pike down into the ground, and then they would take the body and they would pierce the person uh, right on top of the pike. 
right up through their insides. They would die instantly and they would be left to hang there on that pike for as long as it took to intimidate. That was too quick, too simple for the Romans. The Romans had to perfect this. They had to make it an instrument of torture. They had to make it an even greater instrument of intimidation. They didn't just want to kill people and hang them out there for people to see. They wanted to kill people slowly so that the the whole community would understand what the suffering would look like if you stood in violation of Rome, which is exactly what they did with our Lord. So here Jesus is, and he's raised up, and the scriptures tell us he's raised up with two other people. Three people were crucified at that time. There was him in the middle, and then there was a thief or a a robber of some sort, one on the right and one on the left. And we know that initially there was some hostility that was spewed out from these men. Even Even in their desperate state, the last moments of their life, they are spewing out hatred towards the most innocent man who has ever walked the face of the earth. But then something changes in one of the men. And we read about it in Luke 23. Verses 39 to 43. One of the criminals who was hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God? since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. Here you have one thief still remaining hostile, still rejecting who Christ is. And then you have the other who has turned. He's looked at his situation. He's looked at Jesus. He's looked at the ramifications of this whole thing. And he has become welcoming. He's become faithful and honest about who he is. You see, it's what the second thief came to realize that's important. When you trust in the cross, when you take belief in the work of the cross, this is what's happening. The second thief came to realize, first of all, who he was, right? He says to the the other thief, he says, we've gotten what we deserve justly. See, the, the sinner sits before the senator and says, As a Christian, I have gotten what I deserve justly. I deserve the wrath of God, as does the Muslim, as does the Mormon, as does the atheist, as does the Jew, Senator Sanders, as does everybody, is going to get what they deserve. Punishment and death, right? That's what a sinner deserves. The Apostle Paul said this, the wages of sin is death. What is a wage? A wage is something you get paid for what you've done. We've done sin. We've earned a wage of death. That goes back to the garden. So this thief, he looks at the cross. He looks at Jesus hanging there. He says, we're getting what we deserve. I'm a sinner. I've done wickedness in my life. This is what I deserve. That's the first part of believing in the cross of Christ. But then he came to recognize Christ 
personally as God. He looked at Jesus, he not only saw a righteous man, he not only saw a good guy, he not only saw maybe even a king, but now he's looking at him and he's, he's realizing that it's the Messiah who is ruler of a kingdom that's to come. He's saying, when you come into your kingdom, remember me. He knew. Remember, Jesus just moments before told Pilate, Pilate said, are you a king? Jesus said, my, my kingdom's not of this time, this place, this earth. Um, this man gets that. He understands who Jesus is as Lord of all heaven, King of heaven and earth. And he recognizes him as the way of true salvation, despite the fact that he's hanging there a sinner. Maybe it would be, maybe we would be more um, committed as Christians if we were able to be converted the same way this thief was. Maybe if we had the opportunity to actually taste what our sin deserves, like this thief did. Think about it. Who else had such an up-close and personal understanding of what true wrath and punishment looks like. Nobody else at this time understood what the suffering of Christ must have tasted like except for this man. And yet it's the same that we deserve, is it not? This man hung there. And, and he hung there fully understanding that this pain and the affliction and the mocking and the suffering and the, the blood loss and and the inability to breathe on that cross, he understood that all of it was due him. But it wasn't due Jesus. See, we go about our lives, we, have a, we, we, kinda, we think a hard time for us is, you know, when a bill is paid late, or we think a difficult week is when, you know, our children are acting out, or uh, when something doesn't go according to plan, we think that's bad. And then there's the reality of the fact that we have no idea what real suffering is and what, what real pain and judgment would look like. And yet this thief did. He hung on the cross right next to Jesus. He knew that if I wanted to be delivered from this, if I wanted to be delivered from something worse than this, I need this guy. I need him. If we could taste the pain and suffering of what God's wrath must feel like, how much different our attitudes would probably be even now towards the cross? I think we would, I think we would run into fellowship. I think we would run into um, accountability. I think we would, we would run to the Word of God. I think we would run into prayer. I think we would run into worship and celebration each week because we knew without a shadow of a doubt what the pain would feel like and what the pain must have felt like for our Savior if we were crucified right next to Him like this man did. And yet he believed, and the Lord gives him these gracious words. He said, well, think about it. There's no depth to which Christ cannot reach when a heart is truly believing and repentant. You could be hanging on the cross next to Him, and yet He can save you. You could be on death row. You could be in the back seat of a car with a needle stuck in your arm. You could be standing like this 
about ready to strike the person that you once claimed that you loved the most. And Christ can reach into a person's believing heart at that moment and transform them. So there's no baptism required for this guy. There's no need for a person to be baptized in order to be saved. If that's the case, then Jesus just lied to us all right here. He said to this man, you're going to die on this cross and then you're going to instantly be ushered into paradise with me. So any, any church that teaches some sort of baptism in order to be saved, not true. There's no evidence that this man has to provide of some sort of sign gift or speaking in tongues. Did the guy on the cross speak in tongues to Jesus when he asked him to remember him? No. Did a whole body of elders have to gather around him and lay hands on him in order to, that he might receive the Holy Spirit? No. Jesus just said, when you die, you're going to go with me to paradise. Why? Because I'm the Lord and that's my job. That's what I do. The church doesn't save people. I save people. Did Jesus say to this guy, now what's going to happen here is, you're going to die, and you've done some really bad stuff, so I'm going to send you to a special holding pen called purgatory. You're going to have to hang out there for a little while, then you'll be good enough for heaven. No. When did Jesus say the man would inherit paradise? Today. Today. Any, any belief system that tells you that you've done something wrong and if you believe in Jesus Christ, that's great, but depending on what you've done, you're going to have to hang out in suffering for a little while before you inherit true eternal life. That is a man-made lie straight from the pit of hell. Jesus told this man who was in the absolute depths of his wickedness, he said to him, today you'll be with me in paradise. Now if you want to think even crazier, Jesus, had, Jesus wouldn't be resurrected for how many days? Three. God doesn't operate in the box of time. No waiting for a resurrection. Today, buddy, you're going with me to paradise. So in the thief, we learn about the power of simply believing towards the cross and how God can deliver even the most wicked of people. But here's another thing. We look at that crowd there, and we also see Romans and Jews. And in the Romans and the Jews, we learn about the depth of manipulation and hatred that can occur toward the cross. Again, I don't mean to rail on the poor guy, but Senator Sanders is a perfect example of this. He is, um, watch, I'll probably, probably lose our tax-exempt status as a church after this sermon this week. State of Vermont will come down heavy on us. Um, the... The, the simple fact that someone would try and call the cross something that it's not. The, the cross is simply the exclusive method of salvation that can only come from God, and people can't be saved by any other method of salvation. That, that's, Senator Sanders would, would decry that as uh, words of hatred. That's an act of hatred. As Christians, we see the cross as the greatest act of love ever, Right? But the secular world looks at the cross and they, they see terms of hatred and division. And the, the Romans and the Jews, they were, they were no different. Pilate saw the cross as a political opportunity. Pilate saw the cross as one last thumb in the eye to the Jews. That's what the sign was all about. They hung that sign over him 
And Pilate just didn't say the king of the Jews. I mean, he knew what these guys had a problem with. They hated the fact that this guy called himself the king of the Jews. So as a thumb in their eye, Pilate says, all right, well, we'll give him an epitaph here. We'll put it over the cross, and it'll say the king of the Jews. And just to be sure that everybody understands, we'll put it in three languages, Latin, Greek, and Aramaic. And you saw the Jews' reaction. <laughs> Take that sound down. That's not what we said. We said he called himself the king of the Jews. He's not the king of the Jews. And I love Pilate's response. It is what it is. Leave me alone. Now here's the hilarity of it. The great irony is that what Pilate wrote, which he meant as a political jab, was completely true. Jesus was the king of the Jews. God's will was being played out even in the midst of their stupid political games. Remember the angel's words to Mary in Luke chapter 1. The angel comes to Mary, tells her that she's going to carry the Son of God. And he says, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, and he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his Father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. In his kingdom there will be no end. Did you hear what he just said? This boy that you're carrying will reign and rule over Jacob. He is the king of the Jews. He's the king of all mankind, but he is the king of the Jews. Now, the, the Jews... They saw the cross as one last offense to their authority. They saw Jesus hanging there, and what they saw was just time ticking away until finally they could be rid of this menace. The soldiers that were there, the Roman soldiers, they saw the cross as a game. The cross was a, a, an opportunity to... And you can go... Um, Actually, uh, if you ever go to Jerusalem and you take the, the traditional route of the Via Dolorosa, you know, the last uh, hours of Christ and as he traveled with his cross, but you, you can stand there where the praetorium was, where the uh, judgment seat of, of Pilate was, and on the stones, the pavement stones, you can see where the Roman soldiers who were tasked with the, the scourging and were tasked with the crucifixion aspects of criminals, you can see carved in the stones there the games that they used to play while Pilate would await passing of judgment or while they waited for people to be scourged. Uh, the, 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 soldier, the Roman soldiers were always looking for an opportunity to play games. They were always looking for an opportunity to gamble. This was no different. This suffering of Christ was just another opportunity for them to gamble over something. Um, and, and I think that kind of historically goes down for many a military men through the years. Um, there's always a card game to be had. There's always something to you know steal or get from your buddy um, while you're out and about. But the soldiers here, they saw it as an opportunity even to just take this man's last shred of de decency, which was his clothing, and you can read Psalm 22 on your own, but this is simply the fulfillment of the prophecy of the 22nd Psalm. Sadly, 
Today, many who claim Christ in name only or secularists in our society, they point to the cross as a place of opportunity as well. They look at Jesus and they see an opportunity to outfit their lives better. Sad to say, there are even pastors out there that they see the cross of Christ as an opportunity to better their lives financially, to gain a following. They see the cross of Christ as an opportunity for them in an earthly sense to wield more power. And they look at the cross and they see only what they can get from Jesus, not what Jesus did for them. So in the thief, we learn about what it means to believe towards the cross. In the Romans and the Jews, we learn about the depth of manipulation and hatred that we see toward the cross. But the third thing this morning is this. There are these women there standing next to the cross. This is beautiful and amazing. In the women, we learn about the power of love toward the cross. The power of love towards the cross. You see, the crowd closest to him at this moment, the last few minutes of his life, consists of four women and and John. Mary, his mother, Mary's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, who was also at the tomb, and Mary Magdalene. What do we know about these women? Well, a lot and nothing. Mary Magdalene was from a town called Magdal on the west coast of the Sea of Galilee. That's why she was called Mary Magdalene. Um, And she was the recipient of the miraculous from Jesus. This is a story of Mary Magdalene. It's kind of important to read it, just so we remember why these women chose to still be here at this moment. In Luke 8, verses 1 to 3. Soon after, he went through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God, and the twelve were with him. And also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Cusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. So there's a lot going on here, but we know that there's this woman who's now at the cross. Her name is Mary from Magdal, and at one point in time... She had all these evil demons, spirits that had possessed her. She was afflicted. We know from other biblical accounts kind of what that looked like. It could have meant that she was schizophrenic. It could have meant that she was constantly trying to harm herself or that she was, um, she was probably ostracized by everybody. Nobody, everybody knew her, but nobody knew her. Nobody wanted anything to do with her. They may have even tried to lock her up or isolate her, keep her away. Um, this, this woman's life was an absolute nightmare of which she maybe or maybe didn't even realize. But when you have that many demons inside of you, she was literally being wrecked from the inside out. And yet Christ delivered her from that. And what I love is, clearly now at the end of his life, she has not forgotten it. She's there. No matter what, she's going to be there. And all these other women that are referenced in Luke 8, you know, 
it's quite telling. It says that they all, this, it's not a very politically correct statement, by the way, but it says that all these women gave of themselves and gave of their resources in order to support and care for the men and the ministry of Jesus. They were so profoundly impacted by who he was that they were going to give everything. And this is illustrated by Mary Magdalene here at the cross. This is a, folks, this is a, I don't want you to miss this. This is a committed and costly love here at the cross. Adjacent to the cross, right next to the cross, at the foot of the cross stood these women. And despite the threats of being associated with the convicted, the crucified criminal, despite the threats that could have come from simply being associated with him, that could have come from Rome or from the Jews, these women were not going to be anywhere else except right there at the feet of Jesus in his last hours. Nothing was going to pry them away. This was an all-encompassing love. And what I mean by that is, it's mostly women. All those years, there's two, three years, it had been women who had supported the ministry of the Twelve and Jesus, right? Everywhere they went, it was the women who helped to support them, care for them. Where are those men now? It's the women who are at the foot of the cross and one apostle. And I'm not sure where the men went, but God has no problem highlighting the ladies as being the closest to the Lord here. We see it again as it's women who were the first ones headed to the tomb early on Sunday morning. And Jesus doesn't shoo them away. He doesn't dismiss them. And he doesn't write them out. Jesus welcomes them and he ministers to them, and he loves on them, and he radically transforms their life. For the person who is willing to embrace the cross, stand adjacent to the cross, love on the Jesus of the cross, and walk beside him, the Lord has so much that he wants to pour out. We come to Christ, and then we keep our distance. We come to Christ for the fire insurance and then we kind of set the cross over here as that hideous thing, unfortunately, that he had to go through, but luckily now I'm here in the clear. And there's something very healthy about us remaining at the foot of the cross throughout our journey with Jesus. It keeps us grounded. It keeps us buried in the depth of his uh, love. A deep understanding of what sacrificial love really looks like. Because sometimes when you get a little too far away from the cross, you forget what true sacrificial love looks like, and you forget how to be an instrument of true sacrificial love. You become a, you become a maintainer of Christianity. We become uh, routine members of Christianity. We're no longer instruments of the sacrificial love of Christianity. And I hope that makes sense to you. can't think of a better way to describe it except that we have to maintain a proximity to the cross, the true cross of Christ, if we're going to continue to be the effective, sacrificial givers and lovers of Christ's love that he desires us to be. Lastly, this morning, point four. 
In Christ, we learn about the power of love that comes from the cross. We learn about the power of love that comes from the cross. This moment never ceases to amaze me. It never gets old or lost on me. The Son of God is hanging there, fulfilling His mission of redeeming all mankind from the very depths of their sinful wickedness. He is fulfilling all prophecy. He is the Lamb of God bleeding out as the one who would save mankind from their sins. John 3, 16 and 17, we read this. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. That's His mission. That's what He's doing right now. And yet in the midst of that, He pauses. He has enough sense about Himself to pause And he looks at his mother, and he looks at John. And what does he say to them? He says, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. This is like crazy. Christ is fulfilling the great mission of His Heavenly Father and yet He stops to care for His mother in this way. He's fulfilling His duty as the oldest son for His mom. Jesus had other siblings, didn't He? Um, So why do this? I mean, culturally speaking, the next oldest son would step up and care for the mother, right? So what's the deal here? In a cultural sense, the other sons would be responsible for the widow mother and her care since the oldest son was dying. We know that Joseph was probably dead at this point. Perhaps the fact that his siblings were unbelievers at this point is why Jesus is taking this step. See, not only was he dying on the cross, redeeming mankind, but something's about to be instituted at this moment. It's called the church. Jesus is going to die, and then he's going to be resurrected three days later. His followers would now become part of his body, one body, unified in mission, thought, purpose. And then Pentecost, that body would receive the power of the Holy Spirit in order to be his witness. So, since this new family is being instituted, one that's made up of his very body, why run to lost family members first for consultation or for life's concerns? Why send his mom who is believing in not only her son, but believing in the Son of God, why turn him over or her over to the unrepentant lost siblings that remain? 
Instead, she chooses to turn her over. He chooses to turn her over to the one son who is there, who is devoted to him, who's going to walk in his ways, who's going to lead this thing called the church. This is what we do. As believers, we devalue this group. Secular culture would tell you that blood is the most is the thickest thing and and we look at our own families and we think well you know we, everything what's most important to you well the most important thing needs to be blood family blood family is super important to god i mean god instituted the family that's true but god also we forget that god instituted this family through his blood not through genetic blood but through his blood he instituted this family so there may be concerns in our life. There may be things that we need uh, consultation on. Uh, there may be matters that we need support in. And um, I know without a shadow of a doubt, that I, I mean, I have lost family members, as I'm sure many of you do. I'm not going to go to them to find out what I need to do, how I need to live my life, or how best to care for me. I'm going to come to you fine folks. Because you understand the mind of Christ. You have the mind of Christ. Jesus says, I, I feel safer with my mother in the home of John than I do in the home of unbelievers. That's what he's saying. It's pretty radical stuff if you think about it. Now think, think about this from John's perspective. We don't often do this, but at this moment, Jesus is, is making a, a, a command of him. Take my mother into your home. If you think about it from his perspective, right now his world is blowing up in crisis. He's watching his, his master, he's watching his rabbi hang on a cross, getting ready to die. His belief system seems to be on the ropes, and Jesus is asking this of him? This is all about, um, as I was devoting on this this week, like one thing kept coming to my mind, and it was this. Obedience in the midst of uncertainty. Obedience in the midst of uncertainty. If the Lord calls you to something, and the understanding or the details of it seem foggy, the reason behind it seems a little confusing, we must trust in the call. We must trust in the act of obedience. Truth be told, most obedience involves some thread of uncertainty or challenge in our life anyway. God rarely calls us to something that is all panned out, crystal clear, no speed bumps, no potholes, everything's hunky-dory, all we need to do is go, and everything is clear as can be. God rarely calls us to those kind of situations. Normally when God calls us to something, it involves an act of faith, we need to be obedient, despite the fact that not everything is clear. We don't understand everything. As he was doing here with John, he's saying, take my mom. I know I'm dying. I know that this looks like she should be going with my siblings. Um, and, and you think about it from Jesus' perspective and say, you know, I've clarified this many, many times, but you'll get this in just a few days. You'll understand it. It's going to make perfect sense to you. The early church, they, they learned that this new idea of obedience in the midst of uncertainty was going to be their regular day. 
Sadly, it isn't with us anymore, but in the early church, uh, they became quite content in the idea of simply being obedient despite uncertainties. If you think about Acts chapter 5, evangelism and the proclamation of the gospel and the kingdom of God is really starting to ramp up. And the apostles are really starting to make some enemies among the Jewish leaders. And we read in verse 27, And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. And when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. The truth of the matter is, the early church had very little certainty in their life. Their life was consumed by uncertainty. Persecution, arrest, death. And yet all they knew to do, do was obey Christ. Proclaim the gospel. Preach the gospel. Proclaim the gospel. Preach the gospel. That's what they did. You could, you, this, this guy from Wheaton, he could have read this this week. We must obey God rather than men. So John did this. There at the cross, Jesus is dying. He commits his own mother to John's care, and John does it. And tradition tells us that for the next 15 or so years, John the apostle took Mary into his home. There's a lot of stuff that is kind of fun to sort of try and piece together during that time period. It was sometime during that time period that... Um, Probably Luke, the physician, went to John's home, sat down with Mary, and began writing. Tell me everything. What was it like for you and Joseph? When that angel came to you, what did that look like? Because if you read Luke's gospel, there's a cool part there where it says, and Mary treasured, stored, pondered, stored up all these things in her heart. It's almost like Luke is saying, I was the recipient of all this stuff that she stored up in her heart. So you can see Luke sitting in John's house with Mary as she ages and just getting these stories from her about what it was like to be visited by an angel and to carry the Son of God and what it must have been like to witness that execution. Here's the deal. Ultimately, obedience is to look at, cross, look at Christ, to look at the cross, and then you just kind of know that nothing he asks is more than what he has already done. Let me say that again. Obedience is looking at the cross, look at Jesus hanging there on the cross, and knowing that nothing that he is asking of you is more than what he has already done. Any sacrifice, any act of humility, any act of love, none of it that he asks of us is more than he has already done for us. When we hang out at the cross, frequently this all makes sense. This is, 
this message is, is so simple and yet so missing in church today. Um, you know, I believe it was Dwight Moody who, when people asked him, you know, how do you figure out what to preach? And he said, well, normally I just run to the cross. That's what he says. I run to the cross. Because as Christians, we should never tire of the work that Christ did on the cross and what he did to secure our salvation. So today, we hang out at the cross. We look at Jesus hanging there, and we think to ourselves, where am I? Where am I? Am I so in love with him that I I hang out there frequently? Am I so in love with him that I look at my own life in light of his sacrifice? Maybe you're here this morning and you've never hung out at the cross before. You've never looked at the Jesus of the cross to say that I believe he was an innocent man. I believe he lived a perfect life. I believe he was a great, great man. Perfect. So why did that guy have to die instead of me? And the story of the New Testament is simply, the story of the whole Bible is simply, God sent his perfect son to die and take the punishment for sin so that you and I wouldn't have to. How cool is that, church? I mean, we should never get tired of hearing that. God sent his perfect son to hang on that cross and take every act of punishment and judgment that you and I deserve so that we wouldn't have to. And what does Jesus ask for in return? Faith. That we would readily come to him by faith and accept the sacrifice of his son. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and that then you will be saved. The promise of eternal life comes through the cross of Christ. The person who believes in the cross of Christ is not condemned. The person who believes in the cross of Christ is redeemed. So that's what I'm going to close with this morning.